Welcome to the Jacked on the Beanstalk Vegan Podcast. Hosted by the Shorky Sisters. Repping the vegan hippie meatheads of the world is Sam, the first ever vegan World Naturals Bikini Pro. Coach, author, and blogger. Who's got an ass that's out of this world. Repping the busy, tired moms of the world is Sarah. And her ass is, well, mediocre. Together, they're on a mission to live with purpose and unlock the mysteries of a healthy mind, body, and spirit. So grab a seat in the back of Sarah's minivan and enjoy the ride. Surprise! Hello, brothers. <laughs> we are so freaking stoked to talk about protein on the podcast this week, bruh. Yeah, the protein. 100% plant-based vegan muscle building protein, bruh. Listen to me now and believe me later. <laughs> protein makes the muscles. <laughs> oh man, Sam. You may not be able to contribute much to this episode, but your Arnie impression, man, it is on point. Who is this Sarah you speak of? She sounds like a girly man. <laughs> so good. And here I thought that uh, you wouldn't be able to contribute anything valuable to this podcast episode because today, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking all about protein and it is the 21st episode of the jacked on the beanstalk podcast yeah i i don't know about valuable i'm not sure you could you could count that as valuable but um either way i'm pretty sure the arnold impression is probably as far as my contributions are gonna go for this episode (laughs) so i'm just gonna go uh take a nap in the corner all right well there is a really comfy couch just outside of the studio and yes folks we are back in the studio today at chuo radio here in ottawa ontario canada because we have a very special, amazing guest on the show today who I'm super excited about. And fortunately, she has a lot to contribute. Yes. But her Schwarzenegger impression stinks. (laughs) Well, we don't know that. And Sarah, stop getting jealous, okay? You don't get all of my attention all the time. Actually, I know something that you can definitely add to this episode, Sarah, and that is the review of the week. I feel as though it would only make sense if you read it in the Arnie voice, since as everybody knows, we always do an impression of what we think our weekly reviewer sounds like. Unfortunately, I had a feeling this was coming. (laughs) Well, we did receive an amazing five-star review from Ordat this week, and it was titled Honest and Outstanding. You hear that, Sarah? We are outstanding. I don't think anyone has ever called me outstanding in my whole life. Although, I don't really run in in sophisticated circles, though. Actually, I feel like I get called outstanding uh, quite a bit. Oh, how nice for you. (laughs) Maybe not. Anyways, let us get on the show with Ordat's honest and outstanding review. Take it away, Arnie. Listener Feedback. If you want straightforward, honest, uplifting, and valuable advice, then do yourself a favor and listen to the Shorky Sisters. I do not think I have ever heard or read about anyone involved in the fitness industry being so forthcoming about it. 
I tremendously enjoy the perspectives both Sam and Sarah bring to this podcast. Sarah gives the busy mom's perspective to Sam's honest truth about various health topics, all in a very entertaining format. (laughs) Prepare to smile. Or laugh while learning a thing or two about yourself and your health. Congratulations, ladies, on an awesome podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Ordat, for that review. Seriously, guys, these reviews, as entertaining as they are for us to read, they really, really do make us feel so damn good to receive. And uh, it really is awesome to know that people are digging the shit we are putting out there. So please keep those reviews coming. We really appreciate them and they really do make our week. They pump us up. <laughs> Okay, Arnold, I think it's time for you to hasta la vista the hell out of here. This is actually kind of a big deal episode because not only are we discussing a topic that seems to affect all of us vegans, especially us vegan bodybuilders, non-vegans seem to always be really concerned with, of course, our lack of protein. A guy I dated recently, so many times his own mother used to make comments about how worried she was about my health as a vegan and, you know, how could you have children with her one day? You know, how could she possibly have healthy babies? And, you know, meanwhile, this guy was eating meat from Costco and spaghetti every day. I'm sure we all get it. I don't know how many times I've had to listen to gym bros or even other trainers over the years say all kinds of stupid nonsense that vegans can't build muscle without taking anabolic steroids. Or if you guys are ever wanting a good response, by the way, to people who are concerned about your protein, I like to always say you should be more concerned about your fiber intake than my protein because it's actually a fact that we are are more a fiber deficient society than we are protein deficient. So anyways, a big part of my mission and purpose, as you guys all know, is to dispel the myths that exist that all vegans are scrawny looking and malnourished. So I thought it only appropriate to make today's podcast episode all about protein and more specifically vegan protein and we have a very special guest joining us who is actually a local vegan dietitian here in Ottawa and just an all-around awesome chick and total babe. She is Susan McFarlane and she likes to say that she is a dietitian on a mission. She is super passionate about helping peeps achieve their healthiest and most authentic selves by choosing a diet that focuses on food being great grown and cooked rather than created and packaged. Love that. She also holds a bachelor's and master's degree of science in human nutrition and has been working as a dietitian since 2011. Susan currently runs a private practice here in Ottawa where she specializes in vegan nutrition, weight management, and eating disorder recovery. So as you can all imagine, I instantly fell in love with this chick and we have very exciting plans to collaborate on all kinds of cool shit together in the future. So with that, let us all give a big round of applause and a big warm welcome to Susan McFarlane. Hi, Susan, and thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I am so pumped to be on your podcast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hello, Susan. (laughs) Now, before we 
get into the mini questions that I have for you. I did want to say that when I spoke with Susan before today's show, I was actually a little surprised and super excited to learn that both of us have very similar views on protein requirements and ideal vegan protein sources, despite me being a nutrition coach for bodybuilders and fitness competitors and her being a dietitian for people of all walks of life. So I'm really excited to delve in and get into some juicy discussions on protein and a healthy vegan diet, whether you're a bodybuilder or not. Does that mean, am I allowed to ask questions or? Only if you do it in the Arnold voice. (laughs) I want to know how to get my little brats to eat the beans. (laughs) How do I hide the tofu so they can't feel the texture? I'm running out of options. (laughs) (laughs) That impression, Sarah, is never going to get old. Pretty sure it will. No, no, it won't. (laughs) That is a good first question. And I think it would apply to not only vegans with children, but to any vegans. Well, that is a good first question. And I would say if you don't like the beans or the tofu, uh, (laughs) chances are you just haven't found the right way to prepare them. But in all seriousness, if you dislike beans and tofu products, meeting your protein needs and more specifically essential amino acid needs can be a bit of a challenge. However, you know, the great thing about plant protein is it really isn't everything. So provided you aren't a restricting your calories, there are ways we can still meet protein through things like nuts, seeds, quinoa, grain products, and hemp. And one thing to keep in mind with both kids and adults is it can actually take up to 15 times of trying to food before we actually start liking it. So keep trying different recipes, uh, different textures, different ways of preparing the recipes until the kids and adults just find one that clicks. All right. So, uh, Arnold, you got your question answered. I think it's time now for you to go have that nap in the corner. Susan and I can nerd out on all things vegan protein for the remainder of this podcast or bro out, I guess you could say. I'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) When we first met, you shared your story with me. I thought that given this is something we do address often on the podcast, I thought our listeners would really appreciate to hear your story. So would you mind sharing? Sure. So I don't really talk about this with a lot of clients, but like many people I've worked with, and I'm sure many of our listeners, I too have suffered from some disordered eating. Now, I don't don't want to put too much blame on my mom since it was an illness that was uh, impacting my relationship with food, but her disordered eating became my disordered eating. So when my mom was around 14, she developed anorexia nervosa and lived with the physical part of the disease until she had kids in her 30s. However, I don't actually think my mom has ever been fully free from the mental part of the disease. So growing up, my mom was actually vegetarian for the animals, which was super awesome and something that influenced me to become vegan later in life. But as a vegetarian, she ate very little food and she only ate food that she considered safe. So there was never any dessert she ate, no fries, no pizza, nothing fried at all. 
And in our house, there was a lot of negative body talk, not towards me at all. But my mom would make comments like about how fat she would feel. And she always referred to her gorgeous gams as her thunder thighs. So as a kid, I actually, you know, internalized this messaging and felt a lot of shame for eating certain things. So if I was at my grandma's house and snuck a chocolate bar, I would want to hide the wrapper so no one would find out. Um, And I was very aware of just my body shape and size at a young age, even though I was totally healthy. Despite being a healthy kid, I decided that in grade 12, I wanted to be sexy. And I went on a diet. So I did things like restrict my carbs, take tiny portions, avoid any bad foods. I cut my food into tiny pieces and I started exercising religiously. But instead of feeling very proud and happy with what was happening, I actually started getting scared when a size four actually became too big. I was also cold all the time. My hair started falling out. And I actually even had bruises on my lower back from doing sit-ups. And during this time, yeah, my mom never really said much because I think she was just overwhelmed with guilt. I remember after a night of being super exhausted from dance that I wanted to learn how to eat healthfully uh, and learn to nourish my body well. She knew and uh, the only thing is I think that she just made me feel more guilty and kind of more stuck in, in some of my issues. If anyone knows anything about eating disorders, they tend to run in. You know, the apple really didn't fall far from the tree. So I think my mom was just so wrapped up in her own issues. And, you know, I still was eating. So I think that made her happy. I was still functioning. So I don't think she was at the point where she got as concerned as maybe she should have been. Right. Well, and probably if if she didn't know how to deal with her own issue, I mean, how would she ever sort of teach you how to deal with yours? Totally. Totally. I think it was beyond her. And I think, like I said, I think she was just, you know, overcome with, with the guilt she was feeling. One thing I wanted to mention, so that was actually what drove me into wanting to become a dietitian is wanting to nourish myself. And this is actually the dirty secret in our profession is that we have higher rates of eating disorders or disordered eating Mm -hmm. than other professions. Thank you for bringing that up. But, you know, for me in school, it really did help because I learned how to nourish my body properly. And I learned all that, you know, all the messaging I received. I was now able to challenge it. But even in university, I didn't fully become free from my eating demons until I actually went vegan. So when I went vegan, for the first time, I was sitting down at meals, not thinking about myself and my body image, but thinking about animals I was no longer hurting. So to me, that was super empowering. And, you know, today I can say I have a totally healthy body image. I've recovered from disordered eating, but I'll say, you know, I'm not perfect. So occasionally I'll get a disordered eating thought that I'm able to squash down before it. It sets up roots in my brain. Thank you for sharing that. Another question I'm curious about is I know that when I work with a lot of clients who have seen dietitians and nutritionists, they always say that, yeah, they don't want me to be vegan. That's why I'm contacting you because in my soul, I know that vegan is the way that I want to to be and the way I want to eat. A lot of people in your profession advise against being vegan. So I guess the question is, uh, what are some of the concerns that you encounter or have to address regularly when dealing with other dietitians and nutrition experts? You know, the dietitian colleagues that I most work with are are pretty supportive of plant-based diets, but they do treat vegan like a dirty word, which frustrates me beyond belief. You know, when we look at the evidence on plant-based diets, and it's pretty clear that it's effective at 
about both preventing, treating, as well as reversing chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. I question why we're not using this as a treatment strategy and kind of the go-to in our profession. And I get a lot of pushback because dietitians will tell me that they don't want to be the one to trigger someone to go plant-based, that they feel that they're biasing someone to eat that way. But, you know, with the changes coming in Canada's food guide and with a lot of the food guides we've seen, you know, internationally, I think we will see more encouragement towards plant-based eating. I would say the biggest concerns that I get from other dietitians is nutrient deficiencies. Where they'll get most concerned is with kids and uh, teenagers and making sure they're growing well on a vegan diet. And then I also get a lot of sports dietitians who tell me and argue with me that you can't have elite athletes who are vegan. And it blows my mind because I know some and I just, I don't, it just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. In case anybody's wondering, the reference to the Canada's food guide that Susan mentioned is we recently removed dairy as one of the recommendations on Canada's food guide, which is huge news mm-hmm. and awesome. And just having that now in our uh, back pocket. But let's stick to protein. Otherwise, this is going to turn into a two hour long. <laughs> episode but again guys Susan and I are going to do lots of cool stuff in the future together so stay tuned for that. How much protein would you say as a dietitian for just a regular person Mm -hmm. would they need on a daily basis? When I talk about protein I frame it in the way that I want to discuss deficiency versus optimization. So if we just look at what the Institute of Medicine which is the scientific body that sets nutrient requirements for basically North Americans, a protein intake of 0.8 grams per kilogram or 0.4 grams per pound of body weight will meet the protein requirements of most healthy non-athletic adults. However, the method used by the Institute of Medicine to set this protein requirement, which is called a nitrogen balance study, has been criticized. And in case I'm kind of throwing listeners way off, just to let you know what nitrogen balance studies are, is that when we eat protein, there is nitrogen that comes with it. And our body also loses nitrogen in things like feces and urine and sweat. So if we can match nitrogen intake to output, that means we're in protein balance. However, in a lab setting, it's actually really difficult to do nitrogen balance studies because you can't account for all losses. For this reason, a lot of health professionals and health bodies have actually added a bit of a protein buffer given that we might actually need more protein than the Institute of Medicine suggests. So for that reason, most dietitians I work with, most health bodies will recommend at least one gram per kilogram of body weight, which for pounds would be about 0.5 grams per pound of body weight. And this is generally what I recommend as well, especially for vegans, since technically plant-based protein is just slightly more difficult to digest by about 10%. So my baseline would be one gram per kilogram or 0.5 per pound, but I do increase this amount depending if someone is trying to lose weight or if they're an athlete, which I know you're going to get into. So that's actually cool to know that you're recommending to your clients about 0.5 grams per pound of body weight. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, when I'm writing client plans and say their goal is to compete in a fitness competition Mm -hmm. or they're really looking to increase their muscle tone and the definition, 
I will typically calculate 0.8 grams of protein per pound of body weight. And I will say that a lot of the hype about protein, as I'm sure Susan will agree, is definitely overrated. But I think a general rule for all vegans, I will say that whether you're a meatless meathead or not, I always say strive to get at least 75 grams of protein per day, um, typically 100 grams of protein per day for most vegans. And that's pretty easy to get on a daily basis. And more than anything, all muscle building aside, it's it's just going to help you feel more full and reduce your cravings for fats and carbs. So let's talk about protein sources. As a vegan dietitian, and for me too as a nutrition coach, I often get emails from people concerned about eating eating soy and or gluten Mm -hmm. and this is a big one and Susan you said you always ask your clients who immediately declare that they have sworn off a food or protein or whatever you always ask them why Mm -hmm. what is the why behind your reason for having any kind of sensitivity or swearing off something so like so Mm -hmm. can you explain your reasoning behind that so you know in my work it's really important that I'm able to understand my clients motivations behind their food choices. Often I actually find that most people are eliminating healthy foods because, uh, you know, the podcast that they might have listened to where soy was evil and it's just complete misinformation. Or, you know, they might have some very non-specific gastrointestinal complaints. So if I can ask why, it helps me to figure out if the avoidance is actually legitimate or not. And then we can start working together to make sure that they're not over-restricting their diets and missing out on certain important nutrients. And let's actually talk about soy. You guys all know that I'm a big advocate for consuming organic, non-GMO soy, and I eat that almost every day. Not only is it a great source of protein, but it's also very high in fiber, in calcium, B vitamins, omega-3 fatty acids. It also lowers your bad cholesterol and it increases your good cholesterol. As Susan mentioned amino acids earlier. It's high in all eight amino acids. But it gets a bad rap because it contains phytoestrogens. And so uh, for anyone wondering what exactly those are, they're basically chemicals that possess hormone-like properties. Yeah, there's differing studies and views that exist on the subject. uh, But all I can say is I've been consuming soy almost daily for 26 years. And I've never, ever had any kind of health or Mm -hmm. hormonal issues arise because of it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the whole soy is the devil controversy. I think you already said it best. So soy is a nutrient-dense food and a source of important vitamins and minerals that we vegans need to stay healthy and strong. And keep in mind, we're talking about a bean here that has actually been consumed in China since the 11th century BC. And I don't think that they've had any fertility issues. So I'm going to keep things pretty short and (laughs) sweet in my answer. You guys got that one. (laughs) There are no conclusive, well-designed studies linking the consumption of soy with infertility or any hormone-sensitive cancers. Instead, consuming soy has actually been linked to a lower risk of heart disease and is protective against estrogen-sensitive tumors such as breast. Mm -hmm. And for the fellas out there, the consumption of soy is actually associated with a lower risk of prostate cancer versus if you're drinking cow's milk, which can actually increase your risk of prostate cancer. What I will often recommend to people who do say that they have a sensitivity to soy or or they have read one, 
too many uh, bro science articles uh, advising against it. I will often suggest that they will try including tempeh in their diet and uh so basically tempeh is is soy that is fermented and the fermentation process actually neutralizes the phytoestrogens and improves digestibility of the soybeans. Is that something, Susan, you would also advise? Yeah, so I think we'll talk about phytoestrogens in uh, just a second here, but definitely tempeh and tofu, trying the, the soy product in different sources is important if you want to try to introduce some new ones into your diet. So usually what I'll say, and I just did this recently with someone, is like, all right, let's start with some edamame or just plain soybeans. Then let's go to some tempeh. Then let's go to some tofu. I won't advocate it, but I'll say try it in some, you know, process form if you want to see if that then makes the sensitivity. So it's kind of a gradual process where we can start to identify intolerances. One as a bodybuilder that I hear all the time is uh, soy will give you boobs, bro. (laughs) So many men are just terrified to even Uh, go near any kind of tofu or tempeh or soybeans. Often I address this topic actually when I speak at vegan events so this gives me a good opportunity to talk about it here. Basically the bro science says that eating soy causes men to grow breasts because of course of the phytoestrogens. All these dudes now assume that soy would have the same effect if they eat it regularly. Clinical studies don't support this fear at all. Apparently flax seeds contain even even more phytoestrogens than soy does, yet for whatever reason, I don't hear nearly as much hatred for flax as I do soy. Phytoestrogens and their role in human health are so misunderstood, both by health professionals and the public. So the first thing I actually want people to know about phytoestrogens is they're not just found in things like flax and soy. They're actually found in fruits, you know, beans, lentils, nuts, grains, and even wine. However, it's, it's more highly concentrated in soy and flax. So there's two things I want people to keep in mind when it comes to phytoestrogens from soy. First, animal research tells us very little about soy's impact on human health. So if we look at rodent studies, so our little rats and mice friends, they don't actually metabolize the phytoestrogens from soy in the same way that humans do. So what the phytoestrogens tend to do is build up to kind of toxic levels and they can trigger the growth of estrogen sensitive tumors. But this doesn't mean that as humans, we need to avoid soy since we are totally capable of metabolizing soy. And my favorite comparison to make with this is chocolate in dogs. So we all know that chocolate is toxic to dogs since they are unable to process a certain component found in chocolate, but humans have no issues digesting chocolate and we're not going around saying that chocolate is toxic. Second thing that I want people to consider is there's a big difference in how phytoestrogens found in food will act on the body compared to those that are found in supplements or powder form. Most people actually don't know phytoestrogens found in whole food soy are actually there in their inactive form. And what happens when you eat it is your gut bacteria is going to convert some of it to its active form. But when you get like pills and powders and potions or whatnot, it's more likely that it's already activated. 
And at the end of the day, phytoestrogens from soy may actually be beneficial to human health. And, and I find, you know, a lot of people aren't actually talking about this. So consuming phytoestrogens from soy have been linked to decreased menopausal symptoms, uh, healthier skin. They can support bone development, delay the onset and progression of heart disease, and even lower cancer risk. So in the transgender case that you mentioned, what people need to remember is that patients are, be- are being given a therapeutic dose of already very active phytoestrogens. So this is completely different than the phytoestrogens you would get in food. Having a healthy gut, a healthy microbiome yeah. is also crucial for um, breaking down the phytoestrogens in yeah. the soy. And the healthier that you are, the easier your body is going to uh, break them down. So all the more reason why it's not a big deal for us vegans because most of us are just so damn healthy. I remember desperately one time trying to find like human studies on soy consumption and uh, I was looking out for my male clients and coming up with an argument for all these dudes that I have to deal with who tell me that oh well it works for you because you're a chick but I'm a dude. There was actually only one literally one case that I ever came across where a 60 year old man developed large teats if you will (laughs) he was drinking apparently three quarters of a gallon of soy milk every day which apparently did go away after he stopped drinking again three quarters (laughs) of a gallon that's a lot it's a lot of of soy yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) just like you mentioned i think we often forget that millions of people ingest soy daily including entire asian cultures as susan mentioned and myself hello so the fact that there is one reported case for a human of growing soy tits is uh, just not enough significant evidence to caution against eating it, if you ask me. And as Susan mentioned, it's actually been shown to decrease prostate cancer uh, in men. And one more thing I want to mention on this topic, um, and this is something that everybody should share this podcast episode with all of your meat-eating carnivore gym bros. Everybody likes to talk about soy causing man boobs. Well, you know what actually does cause man boobs? Taking anabolic steroids. Yes, gynecomastia, or gyno, as we've we've all probably heard, is a condition where men literally develop breast tissue, which is not to be confused with fatty tissue as a result of being obese or just not working them pecs, bruh. <laughs> gyno is caused by hormonal imbalance What anabolic steroid users often find, they are at the highest risk candidates for gyno because steroids are testosterone derived. They stimulate estrogen in the body. They stimulate the estrogen receptor. And this process of estrogen uh, building up literally binds to the receptors in the pec muscle. And that's what causes these like puffy nipples that droop. And in some mm, cases, that's that's <laughs> full blown man boobs. And I've actually dated guys, as you know, I tend to go out with uh, a lot of meatheads and bodybuilders. And I've dated guys who've had surgery to remove their, dro- <laughs> their droopy, droopy nipples. Teeth. 
<laughs> and I've also dated guys who just, you know, have gyno, like maybe not, you know, major case of it, but definitely mild or, and you know, I'm not a large busty woman. And yes, yeah, speaking of which, if soy really does cause boobs, guys, where the hell are mine? And mine. Okay, Susan. Yes. While we're on these evil vegan protein sources, let's delve into the next big one, which is Satan, a.k.a. Mm. Vital Wheat as our dad says, <laughs> gluten. I know you're all about having a variety of protein sources in the diet of your clients and yourself. And I mm-hmm. too, of course, am a big believer in following the same approach, i.e. having as much variety in lean vegan sources as possible. That means nuts are not a protein source, people. Mm-hmm. I guess that means for me, I'll typically recommend one meal with beans, one with tofu or tempeh, one with protein powder, and maybe one with seitan. Uh, If people don't have a sensitivity to gluten and then maybe one with quinoa or nuts, depending on your goals and body composition, of course. Can you explain your theory around the importance of variety when it comes to protein? You know, one thing to keep in mind on a vegan diet is that you can meet your protein needs without actually meeting your essential amino acid needs. And specifically, the amino acid I'm talking about is lysine, which is referred to as the limiting amino acid. And this is because it's the most difficult to get enough of. So if you get enough lysine, you're automatically meeting your all the other essential amino acids as well as protein. Oh, cool. So what are some high sources of lysine? So number one is actually seitan. So I'm a huge, huge fan of seitan. Also tofu, tempeh, lentils, and beans will have some, but not as much. And the other thing to keep in mind is if you're eating the same sources of protein, you're getting the same nutrients. Mm. And you're not getting the diverse range that humans have evolved and humans need to thrive and be healthy. For that reason, to make sure you're getting enough iron, zinc, and essential amino acids, I'm looking for a variety of different protein sources in your diet. Let's talk about seitan and this whole war on gluten. I, of course, am the first to admit that uh, the macros on seitan are so perfect Mm -hmm. when it comes to muscle building because, bruh, it's like (laughs) basically pure protein, bruh. No carbs, no fat. I probably get at least one email a week from a vegan competitor or bodybuilder thanking me for the protein bread recipe that is on my blog. So everybody check that out if you're looking for a high lysine, Mm -hmm. high protein recipe with no carbs, no fat, bruh. (laughs) But yeah, I will admit that I do sometimes think that seitan or gluten, if I eat too much of it, or if I eat a piece of my mom's white flour pie, (laughs) makes me super bloated. And Sarah, I remember you actually one time (laughs) saying uh, after I had made some homemade savory seitan, I believe it was, you, and I quote, I believe it was, vital wheat gluten should not be made for human consumption. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I, yeah, I wasn't a fan for a while. Uh, I feel like I can tolerate it in small doses, but same as you. Like, if I eat a lot of it, it's as if my body finds every way possible to expel this substance. (laughs) (laughs) That's graphic. Yeah, and I think it's important to mention that sometimes it's the other ingredients that are mixed in 
in with it that might cause the digestive upset. So like I mentioned with mom's pie, it could also have to do with the brick of vegetable shortening or the <laughs> cup of white refined sugar in it. Or for instance, when I've been in prep mode, I used to make this sweet seitan muffin recipe, which is also on my blog. And I would use those Walden's chemical syrups to sweeten it, which is made with sucralose, which of course is like bloat and fart central. <laughs> I, I often wonder like, hmm, was it the actual gluten that was causing me to feel like I was dying or was it the fake sugars? Yeah, sometimes I feel like fart storm is your actual goal. Like, what, <laughs> the meal you were eating the other day? <laughs> Baked beans, boiled cabbage, kale and cauliflower. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and when you offered me some, I was like, um, did you just offer me farts for lunch? Like, what? I'm going to do a week of fart meals on Instagram. That's going to be hashtag week of farts. And if everybody is interested in seeing if I can come up with the most farty meals possible and then calculate how many farts I've had on, on a daily basis, let me know if that interests you guys. You can leave it in uh, a comment on this this uh, show notes for today's episode. Yes, <laughs> I support this. Are you down, Susan? I'm so down. I might yeah. even join in. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll support Hashtag that. week of farts. Hashtag week, week of farts. Got it. Okay, awesome. Hashtag fart party. <laughs> Hashtag fart storm. <laughs> Let's do it. I know I'm getting off topic, but yeah, let it, let us talk about gluten from a dietitian's point of view. How might it affect the digestive system? Assuming, of course, that they have not been diagnosed as a celiac, which of course means an intolerance to gluten and therefore they do get sick if they eat it. I'm going to state it loud and proud. Unless you have diagnosed celiac disease or a wheat allergy, gluten will not cause any intestinal damage when you eat it. So this doesn't mean that you can't be sensitive to gluten, rather that just when you would eat gluten, there's no harm to your intestine. And when we're talking about sensitivity, I don't actually blame gluten. You know, if I'm going to put blame somewhere, putting it on the individual's guts. So often people struggle to tolerate gluten because there's an overgrowth of bad compared to good bacteria. And it, like you said, it's also possible that people are reacting to ingredients in wheat other than the gluten. So if we can do some work, you know, in my practice by getting people to eat a vegan diet, which is so good at growing that good bacteria and maybe starting to take a probiotic, I actually find that people are able to start tolerating gluten again, which is a super healthy source of protein and lysine and iron and so many nutrients. Ten. All hail Satan. <laughs> cool. I love Satan. that. <laughs> And I do always tell my clients to uh, have a probiotic first thing in the morning on an empty stomach with a big glass of lemon water. So I love that you tossed yeah. out the probiotic in there. While we're on the topic of soy and Satan, <laughs> I often get asked about all of these fake meat products. Clients, for instance, they're always asking, oh, can I incorporate these sodium bomb veggie burgers into my meal plan or these fake chicken strips that are covered in, you know, super salty batter deliciousness. And I do think that some are better than others, for sure. Like, I will often say Soul Cuisine is a good brand uh, that makes a good good veggie burger. And the macros on the Beyond Meat products, which are available in the U.S. and not in Canada, you bastards! <laughs> I think there are some of these faux meats that are decent, but I often will say 
They're more of a cheat meal, a little treat meal. They are so loaded with sodium or fat or sugar, and like 99% of the time, they are not organic as well or non GMO. So, what are your thoughts on these? You know, processed food is processed food, and I think something that should be limited in our diet. And the benefits that the research talks about from a vegan diet is when people are eating a whole food, plant based diet. And so, like you said, many of these, I don't I don't like turn fake meat, but I'll say like vegan meats. Many of these vegan meats are high in things like fat and salt and sugar. However, that said, they're often fortified with a lot of nutrients like iron and zinc and B12. So provided they're not a regular thing in your diet and it's not forming the foundation of what you're eating, I'm okay with them as kind of your cheap meal or occasional treat. How often do you eat them? Uh, it depends how often my husband brings them home. Catalyst to my bad eating It's behavior. always the husband. I know. Yeah, I never really have that stuff at home. If I had a couple glasses of wine the night before, maybe, and instead of ordering a pizza, opt for some Guardian chicken chick apostrophe and uh, <laughs> fingers and some sweet potato fries made in my air fryer or something. But yeah, definitely not something you want to be eating on the regular. And what about protein powder? I'm sure everybody knows I am a huge advocate kit for supplementing with protein powders as a vegan bodybuilder and what I love about these is they're great if you have a sweet tooth like I do. Awesome in smoothies. They're also a great portable protein option. I love the Purely Inspired brand because it has really sweet, good taste to it and a nice smooth texture that isn't chalky or gritty like many other vegan proteins. Susan, what what are your thoughts on protein powders? So I would say I'm neither for nor against protein powders. The way I treat them is I do think for a lot of people, they're a useful way to make sure you're getting your protein that you need at every meal. Just the one thing I do encourage is to make sure that the protein powder you do use is minimally processed and not from soy sources. And for kind of the reasons we were talking about with soy before that it could be that contains higher amounts of active phytoestrogens. So some of my favorite protein powders are the hemp-based ones since they're high in omega-3s and zinc and iron as well. But another thing you can do in smoothies too that I like is just throwing in some silken tofu that'll kind of thicken it up and give you another bump of protein. I like making a lot of desserts out yeah. of uh, tofu as well. I make a damn good tofu pumpkin pie. Oh, you didn't I'll, bring any. I know. I should share that <laughs> recipe. Pumpkin pie for, for, for protein bras. <laughs> and I can see Sarah is a little sad uh, because she is big into a soy protein powder right now. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, it took me ages to find a okay, protein we'll keep doing. powder. You're probably fine. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's just one smoothie a day. Yeah, no, Please. you're totally fine. As long as <laughs> As long as, you know, as long as it's not GMO, because once you start messing around with the genes, the genetic composition of soy, that's when I really get worried. And so a lot of the protein powders are less likely to be non-GMO. So I'd say if you could get a really high quality soy one, I'm more okay with it. Jeez, Sarah, I thought you're supposed to be napping in the corner. It's too interesting. I can't fall asleep. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And also, actually, while we're on the the topic of um, processed type protein vegan options. I did want to mention something that I've recently fallen in love with and those are the Herbaland is the company vegan protein gummies and this is a product I just 
discovered at Veg Expo in Vancouver last summer. And they've been a huge savior for me, not only because they're so good for your sweet tooth, but when I'm on the road or just to have something in my car or in uh, my gym bag, if I need a quick protein fix, they also make an awesome, great pre-workout because they've got a good, good combo of carbs and protein. They're only one gram of sugar per package, no fat. They're also non-GMO, so I like that. They kind of remind me of fruit roll-ups mm. when I was a kid. And yeah, if anybody wants to try them, I highly suggest hit up herbaland.ca and I even have a discount code, shameless promo time, Sam Shorky will get you 20% off any of their vegan gummies and they come in all different flavors. They're super awesome and they also make a D3 and B12 gummy as we were talking about things that people tend to be deficient in. As we know, B12 is one that all vegans definitely need to make sure that they are supplementing with. A lot of people are vitamin D deficient. Highly love those too. But I did have one last question for you, Susan. And I know a lot of vegans do follow a high raw or all raw diet. I myself have gone a couple weeks here and there over the years trying to be a raw vegan and being slave to my food processor Mm. and dehydrator. Yeah, dinner will be ready in 18 hours, guys. (laughs) And yeah, I do get my fair share of clients who want to prep for bodybuilding Mm. competitions, but they want to do it as a raw vegan. And I, I just find it very difficult. I would love to know what protein challenges or just challenges in general do you see raw vegans facing? Yeah, there there are a few issues I have with a 100% raw vegan diet. First off, you're missing out on a whole schwack load of healthy foods. Second, because you're not going to get enough protein. You have to kind of make sure you're eating constantly throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And if you're eating constantly throughout the day, you're going to be thinking about food constantly. And when you think about food constantly, you're at a higher risk of actually developing disordered eating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amen, sister. Yes. Yeah. So, and then thirdly, you know, it's so difficult to get enough protein, but also to get enough essential amino acids, iron, calcium, zinc, while eating completely raw. So I know there's some listeners out there saying, hey, I'm doing it. So I'm not saying it's impossible, just super, super difficult. And then I also question, again, the why. Why are people doing this? Often I can find, or what I find out is it's a cover for some disordered eating or because people want to achieve what they feel is, quote, pure health. If health is your goal, then I actually don't think a raw diet is going to meet your health needs. So I'll advocate for maybe like an 80% raw diet and making sure you're including some like cooked beans and lentils and tofu at a minimum. And that's actually kind of similar to how I eat. Whenever I've tried going raw completely, I end up gorging on either nuts or dates because I'm starving all the time. And protein. Exactly. And because I'm working out a lot, my workouts usually suck because of it too. So I suggest the same thing to any raw vegan bodybuilders out there. Definitely do all your, your veggies and fruits raw as much as you want, but but at least try to focus on sprouted beans and sprouted quinoa and sprouted lentils. And I know both pumpkin seeds and hemp seeds are definitely among the higher protein raw sources. And of course, getting as many dark green leafy veggies into you as possible. But before we sign off and sing our song, I know everybody 
loves those songs. Susan, how can our listeners reach you and follow you on social media? My website is susanmcfarlanenutrition.com, and that's M A C F A R L A N E. And I'm on Twitter sometimes, but more so on Instagram at Susan underscore vegan RD. And you can also find my rants on Facebook at Susan McFarland Nutrition. Sarah, you, uh, what, what song are we going to sing today? Well, as I suspected, there are no songs about vegan protein. Really? Yes. Yeah, shocking. <laughs> um, but all of the Schwarzenegger impressions inspired me to go with Guns N' Roses theme uh, song for Terminator 2, You Could Be Mine. And I really wish we had a drum kit here because, you know, like that. Oh, can anyone play drums? Yeah, hello. <laughs> oh my God, there's one in the right, corner. We, we should have practiced. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I'm so down for this song. So good for you, Sarah, for choosing this. See, you you contribute value. Thank and you. Uh, what about you, Susan? Are you going to sing this with us? So I tried, I don't know any rock music. So I was hoping for some maybe rap that we would do. Maybe I'll do your air drums or. I'll, oh, okay. All right. Or yeah. you, can, you can play around on the kit I, in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a cold heartbreaker, fit to burn, and I'll rip your heart in two. And I'll leave you lying on the bed. I'll well, be out the door before you wake. It's a nothing new to you. Cause I think we've seen that movie too. Uh, be sure to give Susan a follow on social media and we will be back next week. Jacked on the Beanstalk, the podcast, Shorky Sisters out. I